First, a question for the audience. Raise your hand if you agree with the following statement. I tend to buy from brands that reflect my personal values. Wow, that's probably 85, 90%. If you raise your hand, you're one of 70% of consumers around the world who say that they buy from brands they believe reflect their own principles. So with that, uh, the first question for the panelists, do you think that brands can do good and be profitable? Is it a race? <laughs> <laughs> Jess, Absolutely. Maybe? I think doing good is good business. I think a lot of people see profitability maybe as a zero-sum game. Um, I'm not an economist by any means, and I know there's a complicated equation depending on the economic market that you're in around like supply and demand and cost and how you drive profit. Um, but just looking at everyone who raised their hand here and acknowledged that they want to buy from and support and engage with brands that reflect their values, I do think it's imperative that brands think about doing good as they develop their business. Yeah, I agree. I also think that the brands that think about their users and making the right decisions for those users every day are just much more effective at retaining and driving lifetime value and loyalty as well. If you do right by your users, um, they're going to come back and uh, bad experiences are going to get shared really, really quickly. So I think certainly from my experience, indeed, when we put the job seeker first in our decision making around product development, we see that it leads to word-of-mouth marketing and greater retention and loyalty. In itself, you know, we help people responsibly build credit and save money at the same time. Uh, you know, we, we tell our employees, like, listen, we're here to make money, but we can do it responsibly. And as part of our mission, uh, it's, it's incredibly important that uh, you know, everybody understands that, hey, we can do both things at the same time. We can make money and we can also be a responsible company that's helping millions of people. Could any of you give us an example of a time where those two things were in conflict? And how did you address it? Yeah, so um, you know, we, we have financial products and our, our products have an interest rate. And as an example of an interest rate is, you know, we want our products to be responsibly priced. We want our customers to be able to afford what we have. And uh, you know, with the decision of how much do we charge our customers is uh, a really important question. And so trying to figure out, well, what's appropriate, but at the same time, how do we make sure that you know, we can get as many people in the ecosystem as possible, um, you know, is a, is a, you know, it's a big challenge. And so we've got a bank partner that also needs to make money. We have a customer that needs to make on-time payments. And we have self that you know, we need to make money, but we need to do it in a responsible way. So it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge that um, I think every company faces in some way. How far do you go and, and what do you do to you know, deliver a great customer experience while still being a you know, long-term sustainable business? Yeah, I can certainly recall a time um, when Indeed was a much smaller company and we were faced with a, a dilemma of sorts. If, the way our business works, we host a marketplace. We have employers and job seekers. Employers pay to post jobs and uh, job seekers come and apply to those jobs for free. We actually had a organization that wanted to post jobs and pay for them on Indeed and pay a significant amount of money. When our team actually looked at what they were posting on the marketplace, 
we determined these weren't always real jobs. They were actually ways to kind of attract people into affiliate schemes, into um, education opportunities that weren't really jobs. So we actually turned down that um, partner and uh, they were not allowed to post those listings on Indeed. And it was a significant amount of money for the company at the time, but we thought it was the right thing to do for job seekers to retain their trust so that every listing they see on the product is a real job. Um, it's not an expired link. So that was a very real moment where we, you know, we turned down short-term revenue for long-term you know, customer loyalty. Similarly, I think Together's only two years old. Thus far, we've, we've been very fortunate to not sort of be in a position of conflict of interest, though we did avoid a potential conflict of interest um, with a brand partner that came to us who wanted to activate with our talent, with our influencers, and reach our community um, in a space that is sort of endemic to sports generally, but also women's sports in particular. And their method of doing that um, was sort of uh, at odds with how we like to tell stories and reach people and be genuine in our authentic storytelling. Um, and it was a significant amount of money, which for a company at our size um, is not insignificant for us to consider. Um, but ultimately, because of um, some missteps on their end and sort of digging into their product and their offering, we decided that it wasn't um, a good value alignment for us and our brand, protecting our brand in the long run is way more important than short-term revenue. Did you end up working with them in any capacity? No, and they still come back <laughs> to us. I have an email in my inbox right now. <laughs> Um, James and Patrick, you guys have both had to evaluate different types of partnerships across the board. How do you find and evaluate and then select the right partner as you're going through these first-of-its-kind partnerships, especially entering the sports space for the first time? So, you know, it starts with the customer. Uh, you know, we, we only exist because of our customers. We want to make sure that whatever we do is aligned to the customer's interests um, and what we observed was that our customers absolutely love basketball. So, you know, we were thinking, who could we partner with? How could this work? And so we had the opportunity to meet with a couple different teams. And uh, we ended up partnering with the San Antonio Spurs uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, the primary reason was that <laughs> their mission and our mission were so similar. Their core values and our core values are also very similar. Um, you know, we, we both care about our customer. We both have integrity. We both care about success. And uh, it just was a perfect fit. We, we just kicked it off, and uh, you know, we, this is the first season with the Spurs. Um, we've got a few more to go we're really excited about. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, we, we strongly believe that the customer has a vote here, and uh, you know, the customer is, uh, is key to this partnership being successful. Yeah, I'd certainly echo that we start with a business strategy that informs a marketing strategy, and then behind that we have a set of values and, and a mission that we hold fast. Um, when we've been looking at different partnerships around the world, we have a quantitative analysis. So we look at, um, and there's incredible data out there in terms of the earned and owned media value of different partnerships and properties. We take a, a long look at that. We think about how a partnership is going to be additive to our existing portfolio of you know, classical marketing, brand advertising, performance marketing. We want it to be additive, we want it to be complementary. So we think about a long-term strategy, an integrated strategy, 
And that probably puts us in a, a space where we start to think about the right partnerships and properties that can speak to an audience that matters to us. And frequently that means quite broad reach. So we're trying to actually address the total labor force. We have a quarter of a billion users in a given month around the world visiting Indeed. So we want partnerships and properties to have massive reach. And sport has massive reach and massive engagement. So we, we look at those calculations, uh, but uh, as James said, it often comes down after that initial kind of vetting procedure to shared missions, shared values, and also kind of how well we think we can activate that property together. For us, like, you know, signing an agreement is just the start, whether it's our six-year partnership with Eintracht Frankfurt in Germany in the Bundesliga, um, or the Irish Olympics team uh, out of our Dublin EMEA office. We think about multi-year partnerships that really are about activation and engagement. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of math and data that we think about to get to a place where we can start having conversations to look for that right fit because we found through great experiences and maybe not so great experiences that actually it's like the team that you work with kind of makes the difference. Like, you can have an amazing property um, but if you can't activate it in the right way, if you don't have shared ideas and mission that enables you to make decisions quickly, you're not getting the most out of the property. So there's a math part, and then I'd say there's a part around the culture fit. And Patrick, you were mentioning that when you joined Indeed, there were less than 200 employees, and now there are 15,000 around the world. How do you get an organization like that that has so many stakeholders now, so many different departments who all need to buy into this to even support a partnership where you can activate the right way? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think it goes back to kind of like a real clear flow from like the company mission, business strategy to why this partnership is going to work for us at this moment in time. And a good example is the, the deal that we, and the partnership that we have with Eintracht in, in Germany. We really wanted to make big inroads in Germany, but we knew from our data that German job seekers didn't really know who we were at the time. This is like 2016, 2017. No, I didn't even know how to pronounce our name or what we were. And, and we needed properties and marketing um, strategies that were going to reach millions of Germans and place us at the heart of culture. So. That was kind of the proposal that we came to, and then we spoke to our senior leadership team and the board, because this is a multi-year, like, fixed investment, so significant outlay, of course, for such a valuable property. But I think, again, if you're able to tell that story from mission to business strategy to actually how this partnership can do things that traditional marketing can't, um, it becomes a really important strategic asset. So. Yeah, I think a very clear, um, strategic, uh, you know, story internally is, is very helpful to cut through some of the perceptions. I mean, it's kind of funny, like, there's perceptions that, like, partners get chosen because the CMO likes, you know, soccer or the CMO likes basketball, and actually you're able to kind of, like, blast through some of that subjectivity with a really clear plan. Jess, together launched during an interesting time in the world. Um, tell us about the first brand that bought into Together, why you decided to work with them, and how that came to be. We were supposed to launch in uh, June of 2020 in the Tokyo Olympics, um, but the world changed. So we, we wound up launching in March of 2021. We took 
a lot of additional time to make sure that we got our brand work right, that we um, really understood who our community and audience was going to be. Um, we banked a lot of content. It was really important for us to have a really strong library that we could go out to market with immediately. Um, it's important, before I answer that question, to sort of just like set the table for the women's sports landscape at large. Um, there's this sort of vicious cycle that exists in the women's sports landscape where of 100% of sports media coverage, less than 10% of that, it's closer to 4 to 5% of that is dedicated to women's sports. And if you're not telling these stories, if you're not putting women's sports on platform to be consumed, viewed, engaged with, it's incredibly hard to build an audience around that. And if you work at a team or a league to put butts in seats, and if the perception is there's no audience or community to be had, then brand partners are very reticent to invest in the space because they believe it's not worth their ROI. And if brand partners aren't investing in this space, then media companies don't tell the stories because they don't have the brand dollars to offset. So it's, it's this vicious cycle that we think every four, every two years, around a World Cup or around an Olympic year will break because we do start to see that investment. So Together was founded with Alex, Sue, Chloe, and Simone to break that cycle starting with visibility, just to dedicate women's sports coverage, make it um, center to narrative every single day, 365, not on two-year cycles. Um, and if we can grow visibility, if we can tell these stories at scale, build a significant community, then brands will have no choice but to pay attention and invest because they will want to reach the community that we are reaching already. Um, women's sports is not, <laughs> if you build it, they will come space. Most of these fans have been here forever, sort of existing on crumbs. It's if you make it available, they will consume it. So when, we, when I was brought into to build together in partnership with these four incredible women, I was asked one question. It was, what are you afraid of the most? The first answer was moving to LA, which turned out to also be true. Um, <laughs> And the, second, and the second was that no one will care. And I meant that from a business side because that cycle has been reinforced over and over and over again, certainly for the last 25 plus years. And when we launched in March of 2021, perhaps because the world was in a different place, because one of the first leaks to come back and be um, very visible and present during the pandemic was the WNBA. Viewership was up, engagement was up. There was a new, renewed interest in the space. We were coming up on another Olympic year. There were social justice conversations and reckonings happening. I think we launched into sort of the perfect cultural landscape where brands had no choice but to look at themselves and ask who they were going to show up for and how they were going to invest. And within 48 hours of us launching the, the brand, we had conversations with and activated partnerships within two weeks with Geico, Coca-Cola, and Google, all of whom made significant investments. Some of those have been renewed year over year. And in 2021, we doubled our revenue target. In 2022, we doubled that revenue target, and we're on track to hit eight figures in 23. So my fear that no one will care has been proven radically wrong, which is amazing, but also these are global blue chip brands who are showing up and investing in the space because they want to be a part of the solution. They understand that women's sports is not a cause or a charity, which has been really important for us to prove, um, but in fact, it's really big business. 
How did you relay that message? It's such a, a gray area. It's a fine line between, you know, doing good business and just doing good and it being a, a charity play. How did you get that message across to marketers when you were speaking with them? Well, the good news is the marketers that came to us wanted to believe that already. Like, they understood where the proof points were. The numbers, you can't, I mean, numbers don't lie, right? We're seeing viewership increase. We're seeing sponsorship increase. We're seeing valuations of teams and leagues increase. We're seeing ownership changes. Um, and again, I go back to, it's not, you don't have to build it in order for people to show up. You just have to make it available. Um, there is the arg argument, I guess the one argument to make is that women move culture forward. And if you invest in and empower women, you will see significant uplift, but also the audience that we were reaching and the audience that we've built that's over 3 million plus strong now, is predominantly 18 to 35, female identifying. They are key decision makers in the market. If you want to reach the people who are going to move culture forward, but also your brand forward and invest in your brand, this is who you want to reach and this is how you do it. You have to tell great stories and you just show up for them and they'll show up for you. James, the partnership with the Spurs was one of the first that you did in sports. In the early stages of even thinking about entering something like this, how are you valuing the partnership? So, you know, number one, it was around customer affinity. We want to make sure that customers, you know, love Spurs, but also love NBA and love basketball. So check, like, that makes sense. Um, Financials, you know, how, how expensive is this going to be? Does this make sense? What's the ROI? Um, and, you know, what we've seen is a tremendous up, uptake in uh, conversion rates as, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of job candidates and business development opportunities. And, and a I also say just like a different level of credibility. So, you know, we, we've got about 500 people itself. We, we have about 1.3 million Active customers, you know, we've helped a lot of a lot of people build credit um, in a responsible way. But uh, you know, partnering with a brand that can also elevate you and you know can um, you know can help carry the message uh, is is super awesome, right? And that we have this great partnership with the Spurs that uh, you know we are aligned from mission, we're, we're aligned from core values, and it just makes sense. And you know, it's uh, it's in the first year of the partnership, but. You know, we've, um, you know, we're really excited and, and, uh, and it's, it's going pretty well. What advice would you have for the marketers in the room, um, both from the brand side and the team or league side, um, to hold, what advice would you have for holding partners accountable for amplifying the brand's values? So, you know, what we've seen is if, if we can't, you know, get the leadership team in a room, if we can't meet with the CEO or the COO or, or other senior folks, uh, it, it's not going to work. And so when we, when we started this journey of looking for, uh, for a partner, uh, you know, one of the dif differences was that you know, with the Spurs, we ended up meeting with all the very senior people, the decision makers there, and it just made sense. It's like, hey, if they're, if they're bought in at the beginning, you know, they're going to be with us in the end. Um, and so my, my advice would be, you know, if you can get people in the room together on a senior level and you both can quickly come to terms that you share similar core values, um, similar mission, uh, it, it's going to work. And it's just a function of, you know, how can you make it work from, a, from an ROI standpoint? And that's uh, entirely solvable. 
Yeah, I'd say on the the guess kind of client side, the marketer side, it's like we found to really make sure we're we're constantly respecting the property's knowledge of its own fan base. It's like they know their fan base really, really well. They know the community really, really well. And we might come in with some great ideas about activation and, and where those activations take place and how to communicate them. But we found that it's actually really effective to say, have a two-way dialogue about ideas as well. Um, and we found that more often than not, the, the stakeholders you know, in the property itself are just going to know inside out from historical knowledge of how activations are played out with other partners that this is the best way to communicate this idea, this is how these kind of um, activations and partnerships can take place in our community. And we found that that requires a lot of trust and, and sometimes you have to you know, maybe scrap up a strategic plan that you had because you realize that there's a lot of amazing knowledge within the organization that you can, you can use and leverage for, for your own ideas. So, for us, it's like been a great learning journey. Every partner that we've worked with, it's amazing how well they know their fan base, the community, the nuances, the language. Okay, this this is actually the best um, social network to spread this kind of message. Um, this is the best place to put, you know, a particular activation. So we defer a lot to that knowledge, and we respect that. I remember one of our earlier meetings uh, on the Job Search Academy. We probably filled a room of 15 or 20 people and then kicked off with maybe double that amount. Tell us a little bit about the Job Search Academy and how that came to be. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier our mission is to help people get jobs and as well as being a site where we're going to provide people with opportunities and, and, and provide a great experience in that job search process. We also want to acknowledge that like finding a job, navigating your career is like super emotional, it's really stressful. I mean, if you look at the survey and research, really in terms of what's important to people and their identity and their life, it's family, health, and then where they work and the kind of work they do. So Job Search Academy for us, it's an, essentially an, a, a virtual classroom where we offer a curriculum for job seekers to help them find better work, work that's right for them. And so it's more immersive experience. And we saw with, with Spurs Sports and Entertainment a way to use your incredible fan base and your um, community to host those, uh, those learning experiences. And we have career strategists, as we call them, people who hold um, webinars with um, job seekers and, and workers from across the labor force. And it's completely free. Um, and it's intended to be a place where you can learn about the best strategies to pivot in your career or continue your path down a particular line of work. So, you know, beyond just the kind of incredible value, as James was saying, about being on, a, on an incredible platform and um, being in that neighborhood of brands and a strong brand like the Spurs, we want to also host experiences and host experiences to both sides of our communities. Jess, I know you do a lot in that space with some of your partners. Um, being a primarily media and commerce company, you've also done a really great job of bringing those activations to life in person. Give us an example of one that you're really proud of. I love this question, and I'm smiling because we're about to activate with this partner in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll story tell just for a second. A couple of years ago, a lot of you in this room probably remember this moment. Um, it was around the NCAA tournament, and 
uh, where was it? I forget where the location was, but um, Sedona Prince went live from the women's weight room, uh, which was maybe a couple of yoga mats and some dumbbells, if that. It was in San Antonio. San Antonio. Oh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Awkward. Um, we'll work on that. I had to own it. Yeah. Someone was going to come up to the mic and say it later on. We'll circle back on that. Um, and showed the extreme disparity that existed. I mean, we know this to be true in the women's sports landscape generally, but um, on the NCAA activation level, between the d extreme disparity between the women's tournament and the men's tournament. At that time, the women's tournament couldn't even brand itself March Madness. And I think because it was put on display and it was such a shocking visual, like you couldn't ignore the truth at that point, a lot of NCAA corporate partners had to look at themselves and question themselves and how they activate and how they spend across the tournament. And one of those partners, um, again, because we had just launched our company, uh, was Buick. And Buick reached out to us in March, actually, of 2021 and said, we have a problem. We know we have a problem. We are a corporate sponsor. We activate on both sides, but truth be told, we activate way more with way more intention on the men's side than we do the women's side. Women's side, we're just writing a check. What can we do? What do you guys think that we should do? And we worked in deep conversation, hard conversation with them about how to better show up and activate their brand dollars across not just the NCAA basketball tournament, but all NCAA championships in the women's sports space. So right now we are in a multi-year partnership with Buick where we are hosting a series of live activations and conversations as part of their See Her Greatness campaign. You probably saw their new ad that dropped um, this month actually um, around the women's tournament. Um, so we activated every single NCAA Women's Championship. We're doing live conversations, um, which they call huddles, where we're having female athletes who've played that sport, who've gone on to play professionally or on the Olympic level, come back and engage with fans in the community, have inspired conversations. We're doing a lot of content capture around that and making sure that they are showing up equal to the men's tournaments every single year at every single championship game. We also worked with them to create a 30-second commercial spot that aired during the tournament last year that highlighted the inequity and also um, called on other brands to challenge themselves to right-size that inequity. Um, it's one of the partnerships that I'm most proud of um, that we've had and the fortune of in the last couple of years because it was an immediate problem that found an almost, well, not immediate solution, but it was a first step to um, what could be a solution over time. Has it been solved? No. And what about just tactically the weight room issue? Is that, is that still an issue? It's, if it is, again, poor NCAA. Um, I know immediately, well, here, the fascinating thing to me is one that, that even existed in the first place because it was a stark contrast. It wasn't like the women's facility was like half the men's facility. It was like not even a quarter of the resources. It was like we don't even value them as competitors or athletes, even human beings at this point. So we knew it, it could have been prevented because within two weeks, the weight room issue was fixed. Maybe even less than that. Like brands came in, donated equipment, they built the weight room out. It wasn't a matter of space. Um, 
So it could have been prevented in the first place. The, the thing that hasn't been solved is the amount of investment and the thoughtfulness and intention around the activation in men's and women's sports, particularly events like this. Do I think it's changing? Yes, I'm optimistic because I do see the investment coming in across all sectors, across visibility and community, consumer products, brand partnerships. Um, a women's sports is valued to be a, a, mil or a billion dollar business in the next few years. So I think brands are realizing that, again, it's not a cause. If you risk, like, there was a, for a long time, the question was, is it worth our ROI? Right now, I think the risk is not investing. If you don't invest now, you're going to miss out. What are brands asking you at the end of their first year working with you? When you're starting to talk about ROI and what was sold versus what was delivered, what should properties be thinking about as they're entering any sort of purpose-built partnerships? What are brands, what are some of the questions that are being asked of together? It's a great question because we don't have scale and eyeballs in the same way that some brand partners are looking for. So the metric is usually around engagement, um, sentiment, impact, um, some of the more immeasurable um, measurements that are a challenge to articulate. Um, we are solving the eyeball uh, issue, which is a, a concern for any media organization, is how do you scale and bring more eyeballs, because that's what brand partners ultimately want. For ours, it's like, how do we move culture forward? Did we move culture forward? Did we tell a great story? Did we make people think? Did we make people feel? What did the engagement around that entire package actually look like? What are the things that we can measure around that engagement? And then, of course, if it's tied to product, like how did it move the product forward? That's always, always a concern, of course. But the question usually at the end of the year is, um, how did we do and can we do more? James, Patrick, I'm interested in your responses to that coming from the brand side. Does that industry need to evolve to get eyeballs? Like, are you, are you thinking about measuring that equally in the way that you're evaluating a men's sports partnership? Or do you think the future is an opportunity to think about how sports partnerships for women's sports are valued a little bit differently around some of these other metrics like engagement? Yeah, I think there's two components. One is uh, Jess was just speaking to, which is that this is a space that is growing rapidly, and you want to enter it at the point pre-growth if you're just apl applying like just a, a sort of hard-nosed business uh, approach to this. But a, a, there's there's that growth aspect. B, it's absolutely the right thing to do, and it should align with your your brand's values. I mean, I, I think you can. You can use the same tools and the same infrastructure that you may measure a, uh, a, men's, <coughs> a men's league on um, versus a, a female league. But for me, I think a lot of times brands want to think about kind of the value of what they're getting and the, the future ROI. And the future ROI is clearly, clearly on the upside um, for women's sports. And we were talking about this yesterday, the brand partners that got... Um, associated with um, the England uh, national soccer team, um, the Lionesses, they have seen tremendous, tremendous value. Ten years ago, that was poorly covered by the media. It was not given adequate resources, um, the, the women's soccer leagues in the UK. 
And after winning the European Championships, um, you know, the, the growth and the way that team captured the energy of the nation is undeniable. And absolutely all the brands that stood by those leagues and by that team as it was growing and as it was fighting for media coverage deserve those rewards and, and deserve, you know, to be part of that growth. So, you know, I think for me, it's, there's a growth story there and it's also the right thing to do for culture and for society. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we have more work to do, uh, ultimately. You know, the, the one thing I'd say, though, is like I would rather have a smaller audience of you know, fiercely loyal people than a larger audience without that. Um, so you know, we, we are exploring new opportunities, and you know, we're looking at other sports, too. Like you know, in the U.S., MLS is a, is a sport that I don't think people really were talking about a few years ago, and, uh, and now they are, and there's, there's a lot more work to do there. But... You know, the one th other thing metric that we do care about is like aided versus unaided brand awareness. And we've seen, you know, an upt uptake in that. Um, you know, it's one of the cool things of just trying to, you know, pinpoint, okay, well, how valuable is this partnership? And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen through engagement metrics and, and through um, uh, things like unaided and aided brand awareness that we're actually getting, you know, really positive ROI. And we're really happy with the, happy with the, uh, the partnership. Why should brands choose sports as the medium for which to amplify their brand values? I mean, everybody loves sports. You know? There's just so much opportunity. And you know, what's, what's great is there's, whether it's Formula One, which is now becoming huge, or whether it's you know, soccer, the NBA or WNBA, like there's, there's so many ways to engage with consumers. And you know, if you think about um, you know, just from alignment of, of values and, and mission and there's just so much that goes hand in hand with with sports business. You know, it's just it's just fun, right? And who doesn't love this? It's just such an such a uh, an amazing opportunity to be so close to seeing how the you know proverbial sausage is made and being part of this uh, part of this process. Sports is universal. It's global. It's a uniter. Um, I think some of the biggest cultural influencers in the entire world are athletes. I used to work in music, and 10 years ago, I probably would have said those are musicians. I think athletes have almost outsized musicians in that way. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great neutralizer in the best way. And also, sports is ground zero also for every ism and every social conversation that we are having. So it's almost impossible to sort of like extrapolate that from the landscape itself and also the positive impact because of that you can have if you're working through and in and around sport. Yeah, yeah, I think Jess said it perfectly. I, for us, we're just constantly amazed when we look at different markets and countries how it may be a different sport, but the same passion and the same level of engagement from fans is, is the common unifier. Like when you look at India and the IPL um, Cricket League, that is just an incredible, incredible um, sort of uh, cultural um, tone setter. Whether you look at soccer in Europe or you know, a variety of sports across the US sport landscape, um, the level of engagement, the passion is real. And I think you can build real relationships between brands and audiences through sport because there's such a true passion and a true energy that it, it's not fake, it's real. And, uh, you know, for us, it's, uh, it's exciting to be part of those 
conversations. We want to be where attention lies, but we also want to be at the heart of culture um, in cultural conversations that matter as well. So it's fantastic to see how different leagues in different properties are um, using that energy around the world. At the top of the session, most of the room raised their hand when we asked whether they buy products that align with their values. How are you taking that passion and applying it toward um, your users? How are you thinking about um, amplifying your brand values and making sure that your brand's purpose is clear and then taking that and, and driving results for the business? You know, with our brand, you know, we, we want to help people responsibly build credit. We want to help people save money. And, you know, it, it's, we, we live and breathe this every single day. It, it's real. It's part of our culture. You can talk to any of our employees. They'll say the same thing. Um, and it's because we care. And, you know, what's, what's great about partnering with, um, you know, uh, not only a group of people, but a, a team that shares that same passion, you know, it's such a remarkable opportunity. And you know we've seen that you know you guys live by the, the the core values of integrity and caring and success, and it's real. And you know our customers, they're smart. They understand this. They understand you know who you partner with is very important. And you know you partner with somebody that screws up and does something that has a conflict with your brand. Uh, there's there's chaos. And so you're trying to find a partner that uh, that shares how you're going to operate, not only in good times, but in bad times, is hard. But we found one. Yeah, yeah. I think for us, um, we think about our mission every day. We think about the way it informs every decision we make in the business. Um, just this morning, I was writing a, a weekly email. We call it a reflections email. We send it out to um, staff. And as part of that email, um, it's a, a weekly email that comes from leadership, and half of that email space is job seeker testimonials, people who write to us after they found a job on Indeed. And these are really emotional stories. Um, people will say the difference that getting a particular job made to their lives, it was a shorter commute and they spend more time with their family. Um, they were able to get a job that stopped their house being you know, repossessed, like really emotional, important stories and for that that really grounds us at the start of the week and it makes us think that like we want to do better um these people deserve our hard work and um you know that centrality of mission informs all our decisions so yeah for us it's uh living that each and every day in our decision making that's amazing i want to steal that you you write that yeah, uh, we have a we have a tool <clears throat> whereby different job seekers can tell us their stories when they've found a job, and then we we look at those stories, review them, and um, that is half of the kind of the weekly the Monday email. And, and we also will put bad experiences there. We call it broken experiences, where people are like, you know, your job alerts suck. Like you sent me too many irrelevant jobs. It's like a reminder that it's just you know there are frustrating outcomes for people in this process too and I think that really grounds us and keeps us really user focused. We do the same thing. Most of ours are DMs though. It's, we, we don't have an official form that you can fill out. Um, we, we joked when we were building together we would know that we built something that was <clears throat> resonant if 
someone got our logo tattooed on their body for some reason. Like, I don't know why you would do that, but it, I didn't, and we were joking about it. And within eight months, someone DM'd us um, a picture of our logo tattooed on her arm. And, and I, I say it as a proof point that our content is, or our product is content. And we wanted to build a brand that was sort of home to generations of women and girls who never really had a brand to call their own and to sort of be a see-it-be-it it brand for those that haven't had one, um, past generation, current generation, future generation. And we are flooded with those messages on email, mostly DMs, because we have a younger audience. Um, like pictures of them wearing our swag out in the world, you changed my life, thank you for telling the story, I feel seen for the first time, that was my same journey, that was my experience, you're doing the right thing, keep showing up, keep investing, keep doing what you're doing. They'll also tell us what we do wrong. Two, they hold us accountable on the brand partnership side as much as the content side, um, which is amazing because they care. And it's also because this brand was built for them. So we, we generally, we pay a lot of attention to that as our brand grows and shape shifts because we want to reflect the community that we represent. We would love to open it up for questions from the audience. There's a mic in the middle of the room. Um, so I think we can just get in line and, yeah, we'll open it up. Specifically for partnering with Trinity University's um, sports philanthropy class. Um, I was a speaker on it because I'm an alum uh, just this last Thursday. And they talked about the different things that they were doing with different people in the San Antonio community. And it's an experiential class. So like, as you were saying, they don't want charity, they want to help. And a lot of times people come out of school with, like they know these things, but the way that you learn how to launch things is actually doing them. And it's really great that that's a partnership too, is partnering with the young people that have interest in sports partnerships driving impact, but those don't just apply to sports. Like anything that any corporation does involves putting those values together and understanding how to launch and being sensitive to some of the stakeholders involved to get things the most effective launch possible. So I just wanted to share that with you and wanted to get your thoughts. Oh, we appreciate it. Um, I'm looking at Sarah, who is an alum. <laughs> um, we we really do try. Um, we're very much involved in, in our community, and that's really important to us. Even as we grow here in Austin, um, it's important for us to have roots in the community because at the end of the day, that's who you're talking to. That's who's going to support you. You can't come in and come in hot and think that you know everything and think that you know what's best for a community when in reality it's like any group that you're going to be joining you have to listen to the community and move at their speed so thank you for sharing that hi good morning my name is jose carlos sarmiento or charlie sarmiento uh, i'm an athlete and a sports entrepreneur and i want to ask you uh, when you sponsor athletes what you are looking for, not necessarily only as an ROI on the social media, uh, but which other components uh, you want to, to, to see. And just a uh, quotation, I'm developing a founder of a sports platform for underserved athletes 
who wants to fund their sports career based on performance data, but from a holistic perspective, including education performance, social impact performance, training and athletic performance. So I would like to know your comments. Thank you. Uh, you know, for self, it's important that you know, whoever we partner with, we have the, you know, we feel like we share the same values, we share the same, um, you know, the, the challenge of course is, you know, partnering with a single person is, is hard. And, you know, we, we found that, you know, partnering with a team can, can be easier in some ways. Um, imagine having, you know, 500 bespoke partnerships. It's, it's, uh, it, it's hard. So, um, but at the end of the day, you know, we care about, hey, does this person share the same values that we do? Are they going to be a, a good influence to our brand? Um, is there a risk there? Is there not risk? You know, the, and, that, and that's where, uh, you know, we, we think that it's, it's a lot easier to partner with the team. I just think from a storytelling POV, like, who are you? What is your brand? What are your many dimensions? It's not just your reach um, on social. It's, it's not just your athletic performance. It's looking, at, it's looking at an athlete as an entire human and wondering where your story and narrative has impact. And then building a story and narrative around that in partnership with an athlete and also empowering an athlete. This is my player tribune also speaking empowering an athlete and giving them platform to share their narrative, where oftentimes we, we tend not to dimensionalize athletes. We are only looking at stats and performances or their monetary value. We're not looking at them as humans. But given they are these massive cultural influencers, I think for us it's really important to dimensionalize them. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think the authenticity is huge. Also, just um, an athlete's you know, career can end in a single injury. So we also think and, and look at the kind of athlete spokespeople that have done incredible things after their playing career. Sometimes more impactful things and sometimes things that shape culture in even more dramatic ways. So exactly to that, like we think about the, the, the whole person and not just what they're doing within their sport and that reach and the, the inevitable kind of engagement that draws, but what happens in the future? Can there be a spokesperson um, for us, we found a lot of success when we brought um, athletes into the fold and engage with our clients, um, tell stories about leadership, about overcoming adversity. So that authenticity and the kind of the texture and seeing them as a full person is really big for us. Thank you. Hello. Thank you guys so much for coming in and sharing with us today. Um, Jessica, I had a question for you. Um, besides watching and sharing content, how can we as typical consumers continue to intentionally invest in women's sports? Buy tickets to the game, <laughs> go to the games, um, support the brands that are investing in this space because that investment is part of what's sort of like lifting the entire tide. Um, watch, consume, share, engage, go to the games, support the brands that are supporting these women call brands out for it too. Um, people often ask me on the brand side, what can brands do to drive growth and investment in this space? And I said this last night sort of curtly, and I mean it sort of tongue in cheek, but really like cut the check. <laughs> there's, just this, there's a way that you can show up with intentionality. Um, and I also think like support the people that are supporting the space. Um, and that's on the consumer product side, that's on the team and league organization level, that's from the brand partnership level. It's from the media organization level. Um, when we launched together, we were sort of 
in a significant white space, kind of a one of one, and that space is getting increasingly crowded with more brands focused on women's sports, which has been amazing to see. Um, we love that. That means that there's a solution that's coming about. So engage, support, amplify, keep doing that. Thank you. Hi, um, my question is around uh, the shift towards storytelling content. How do you convince either your internal team or external stakeholders to get on board with this inherent risk of investing in the person um, and really centering values versus the paycheck behind? I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, I think uh, there's, of course, risk with any sort of social media interaction, but I think if you've established a really strong relationship with individuals and athletes, um, and really understood sort of the boundaries of that partnership and, and how you want to show up with that athlete. Um, the storytelling is, you know, the, the only way. Like, there's so much content out there. You have to be really thoughtful about how did this break through? How is it, this going to be meaningful to someone, to be interesting to someone? Um, consumers more than ever can spot you know, kind of inserted brand stories in an inauthentic way. And I think that uh, people are very, very savvy and you should respect that intelligence and think carefully about stories that are interesting and, uh, and real. I mean, I recall something we did that was just ended up being inadvertently like really funny. We took some of our Bundesliga players and we, we asked them to do jobs in different types of jobs in society. So we'd take them to like a fire station. It'd be like a fireman for the day. And it's just like, you just go unscripted at that point, and it's really interesting to see how like a top-level professional soccer player adapts to being like a fireman, and you don't have to you know, orchestrate that too much. It's just a really fun kind of social media moment. Um, so yeah, I think you have to be creative and, and sort of trust the partners you've selected. I think story, storytelling to me is everything. Um, if we can work with an athlete specific or with a team or with a brand partner and tell a story or a series of stories that make you think or make you feel. If I can challenge your IQ or shift your perspective or I can tap into your EQ, I can surprise and delight, I can make you emotional, I can do any of those things, then I fundamentally believe storytelling can change the world. Certainly perceptions and engagement with a media brand or an athlete specific or a brand partner. Um, to me, storytelling, is is everything it's how you wrap it's it's how you wrap it's it's the wrapping it's the meat it's the potatoes and everything and we talk a lot internally about capital s storytelling can sometimes feel very serious like how can you serve a cupcake that has a little spinach in it you know like how can i entertain you that also teaches you a little bit of something and imbues you to go on and have impact in the world or place it into context of where there can be societal impact because everything we do it together comes back to that mission and values-driven uh, mission to right-size equity in sport. Um, so we think about how we can entertain but teach a little along the way. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Carolyn. I'm a former professional golfer and I'm also a sports entrepreneur now. Um, this is really close you know, the Jessica, especially you, the female representation in the space, golf especially, is one of those sports that has a hard time being represented and females getting time. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the gap of 
the education side from athletes and their partners and their sponsors. Because, as, for example, when I came out of college as a female athlete, I had no idea what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, who I should be partnering with, when I should be partnering with people, when I should get management, and all this stuff. So I think there's a responsibility here from a sponsorship and maybe a management company side to give those tools to the athletes, especially in the female space. I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, it's complicated and a long answer. I would say, I think, and maybe this is true on the men's side, I'm curious to hear like what the Spurs as an organization do for their athletes. I think there's a lot of education, especially with NIL, that could happen at the NCAA level in empowering and educating these athletes at large, especially women athletes. We know seven of the top 10 NIL, NIL athletes happen to be women. The upside for NIL and women athletes is significant and outsized, I think. But you're right, there's not a lot of education. There's sort of no roadmap for female athletes to follow unless you're signed to a significant agency, either in college now or when you turn professional. And that's not the case for most women athletes. So I think there's an education level that has to happen at the, on the collegiate level if you're lucky enough to play D1, D2, D3 in college to understand how to build your own brand, how to work with brand partners, how to connect with brand partners, understanding the value of those partnerships, understanding the power of storytelling for yourself, for your own brand platforms, how to monetize it yourself. And then, of course, once you graduate to becoming a professional, working with whatever league or team or organization and their brand partners, plug in. If you have representation, that certainly helps. Um, but it's important to know who you are and what your values are and then have sort of a wish list of who you want to work with yeah. and work to, to sort of like bridge that gap. But it, there is a fundamental education gap for female athletes in particular to teach them how to do those things. I know some professional sports leagues do have programs where they try to educate you. I think the NBA is a little more organized than the WNBA, for example. Um, so I also think like leagues in general on the women's side need to do a better job as well. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thank you so much for your time. Uh, my name is Hayden. We have a brand in Cedar Park for physical therapy and sports performance. And we're doing a lot of partnerships with the local teams in our community. I think we started off this conversation today asking if like, as consumers, do we like to partner or invest in brands in line with our values? And so I guess my question for y'all is, in this day and age, players make mistakes, coaches make mistakes, organizational leaders make mistakes. That information moves so quickly and the public responds to it so quickly. How do brands and properties like navigate those waters right now? How quickly should they be reevaluating these partnerships? How quickly should they be communicating with their organizations? I mean, really, how do y'all navigate that? You know, when there's a crisis, you have to be communicating. I mean, that's, that's the number one rule. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we've seen this happen before, and, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And so mm -hmm. the thing I would say, having the partner be on the same page from the beginning is going to make the difference between, you know, success and failure, whether somebody's pulling out or, you know, whether that person's committed. Now, that being said, there are certain things that are red lines, and if, if it happens, absolutely, you have to walk away as your brand. Um, but I think, you know, there's, all, there's a lot of gray. You know, there's a lot of gray, and, and people can make mistakes, and, and people can recover, brands can recover, teams can recover. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough, tough situation. That definitely is the risk, the biggest risk around not just athletes, but any individual, right? We're all human. 
it's bound to happen. Someone is going to make a mistake. Um, but that's why the values alignment at the very beginning becomes so important because if you have the partner's best interest and you all are communicating with each other, it's most situations you can get through. Um, so to James's point earlier around having 500 bespoke partnerships with all types of different athletes, it becomes a little bit harder to track. Um, the higher up you get, the broader the scope becomes, it's a little bit easier to, to maneuver through the hard times because you know it's like dating someone, right? Like you know that they're, they're going to mess up, but their core is so aligned with what you're looking for that the, the challenge is not unnavigable. Um, and so in valuing a partnership, even from our perspective, and I'm sure from Together's as well, looking for the right brand partners. Both sides have to work. Um, there are, and we found great partnerships with the brands that we work with, an amazing portfolio of brands. If you're aligned from the beginning and you're aligned at the core, the problems will arise. It's inevitable. Um, but if you're aligned at the start, you can manage through it. A court of public opinion is really <laughs> a big one here. Um, I agree with you. Headlines run really fast. There's not a lot of room for context or conversation, or at least thoughtful conversation on social media from a, a values alignment. We, we actually had this issue in our first year. We had a big, significant brand partnership um, that was centered around a content series with one of our co-founders. And at the same time, unfortunately, in the state of Texas, there, was, there were anti-abortion um, the legislation being passed and also anti-trans legislation moving through government. And we found out that one of our brand partners and like an internal lobbyist group was supporting anti-abortion legislation. And their brand was all over our content, all over our channels. And our community were the first to point it out. And they were calling us hypocrites for working with this brand partner that was undermining the rights of women. So we had to get on a series of really hard and complicated conversations with our brand partner. And there was nuance to all the, whole, the entire situation, which of course, social media doesn't allow for that conversation. But it was, it was one that we had to have with them. Like if, we, if we're gonna renew this partnership, we need to understand really where you are and where this money is going because we stand up for the rights of women every single day. And we can't be in the business with a brand partner who's, who's undermining that that hurts our brand, that hurts our community, that doesn't stand with our mission. And we, we netted in a good place, but it was a really intense series of conversations we had to have. Thank you all so much. Hello, I'm Mario Hernandez. Thank you again for your time and insights. I'm a social impact entrepreneur, empowering change makers through my social network, and I was just wondering a little bit about your journeys, uh, Jessica, James, in terms of establishing these brand alliances with top brands. You mentioned Buick, you're working with the Spurs, and we all start from somewhere, so I kind of wanted to know how you were able to establish such incredible monumental partnerships with those brands and what that journey was like to be able to establish that. Personal journey or? Um, no, business, like B2B channels, how do yeah. you establish, for example, um, those connections? What were your journeys like to be able to actually make that happen? This is a personal journey, is it? We'll, we'll talk about that one. Um, uh, B2B journey, I think for Together it started 
with building a culturally resonant brand that was so clear in its mission with four powerful, influential women, and then a collective of women around that that stood for something and stood for something at the right time when it meant something to stand for that thing. Um, also seeing like business growth and investment in the space in which we entered sort of makes it easy to have those B2B conversations, like the argument, going back to the argument of why you should invest in this space and why you should work with together. It's a relatively simple answer for us. It's a larger question for any brand partner because they have to determine what ROI means to them. For us, success is investment and growth in the space. That's, that's sort of very simple for us. Um, we've been fortunate to sort of drink from a fire hose of inbound business. A lot of brand partners coming to us and saying, we know there's an equity in sport. We know that we need to show up for women in the same way that we're doing on the men's side. What can we do? And we get to be a part of helping them answer that question. Um, we haven't had to go out and shake a lot of trees and convince people to work with us or to invest in this space. I think they're understanding they need to do that. And there's only a handful of companies who are doing that every single day. And we're fortunate to be one of them. So by and large, it's been inbound, multi-year, deep um, partnerships. You know, it started itself about eight years ago, and when we um, we went through a tech accelerator here in Austin called TechStars, um, you know, started the company not having raised any venture capital, uh, and then you know three months later we had raised a little bit of venture capital and we're off the races. Uh, you know, the, early on it was really tough just to show that we're hey we're a credible brand we're trying to do the right thing, and building a group of customers was super challenging. So we were totally direct to consumer. You know. Google Ads, Facebook, Snap, everything we could do, just going direct to the consumer. And over time, you know, we were zero people to now we've got about 500 people that support self. Um, and with growth, you have the luxury of investing in, in brand marketing. You know, early on, you don't have that. You know, early on, you need to, how, how do we make payroll? How do we you know, make sure that we've got uh, enough cash on hand? How do we hire the best marketers? How, we, how do we hire the best product people? And uh, over time, you know, eventually when, when you have the scale, that's when I think you have the real luxury of being able to, to choose who you can partner with and finding a partner that makes sense. Well, thanks again and congratulations to all. <laughs> do I have time for one more? Oh, sorry. Last question. I was too nervous to come up earlier. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, my name is Julie Corieth. I have a company, Speak as One. I'm not an athlete, but my company is about mental health because of my personal struggles. Um, we have storytellers on Speak as One for the last few years, and recently I was approached by Texas State University because they were having, you know, athletes really going through some mental health struggles, and so they asked if we would work with them and th these young athletes spoke to us and shared their stories and had a couple of former NFL players and my question to you is you know death by suicide is happening um, amongst some college athletes been hearing about it more and what do you see as changes in, in mental health and what can we do to support that I think it's breaking the stigma first and foremost and having especially on the elite athlete level, professional level, a lot of athletes coming out and being very open about their own struggles um, with mental health. Um, when I ran content at the Players' Tribune, we had a story 
with Kevin Love, who followed in DeMar DeRozan's footsteps and came out and was very open about his own struggles with anxiety and depression and how it affected his performance. Since then, many other athletes have also been equally vulnerable. And a lot of these athletes, especially on the women's side that are speaking about it, are black women and women of color, which is like we're talking about layers of stigma that they're undoing just by being authentic and real and vulnerable. So I think even having the conversation is a good start. I think there needs to be, much like education and the brand partner side and building a brand as an athlete, there needs to be investment, certainly on high school level, but collegiate level, and taking care of the minds of these athletes because we take care of their bodies and we forget that, again, they are a whole person. So we need to treat the mind the same way that we treat the body. We need to train the mind the same way we train our bodies. Um, and like put in place resources and also have coaches and governing bodies who support that and are equally as invested in who that person is and not just how they perform. Yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you, and um, thank you to our panelists for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.